This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Mimi Valdez about her unstoppable career from a magazine editor to her creative partnership with a pop singer, Pharrell Williams. We look for what's not there, you know, and we're like, okay, what's not there? All right, let's create that. That's what's exciting to us. Here's Debbie Millman. Just mention the word happy, and chances are there's a song that comes to mind. Pharrell Williams' single, Happy, and its music video went viral topping the charts and winning a Grammy for Best Music Video. Who was a massive creative force behind this smash hit? Mimi Valdez. She's been called visionary for changing the way we consume pop culture. Her fingerprints are found on nearly every artistic medium out there, from music and films to magazines and set design. Today I'm going to talk to Mimi about the arc of her very interesting career, among many other things. Mimi Valdez, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. It is so weird to hear that, though. It's, I feel like, ah. Oh. <laughs> well, let's talk about how it all happened. You're a native New Yorker, yep. part Cuban and part Puerto Rican. And I read that when you were growing up, most of the other kids you went to school with didn't understand you as an individual. Well, it was specific. Specifically about hip hop. I was a oh. really big hip hop. Well, that fan. was really early adopted. Yeah, no, but I mean, you know, growing up in New York City, you know, the music was just sort of all around. But grammar school, it was just sort of like, uh, hip hop, what is that? You know, so that it was more about that than anything. You also felt that it was more fun to have conversations with adults. Were you precocious? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think being an only child, you don't grow up having a bunch of kids around that you're just sort of talking to. And, and I loved going to school and I loved being around kids. But most of my conversations that I would have in my free time would be with my mom and my grandma, just because my mom was really strict. She wouldn't really allow me to hang out with other kids unless she was around and she was working a lot and my grandmother as well, too. So it just ended up being around uh, a lot of adults. <laughs> what part of New York City did you grow up Chelsea in? Chelsea Projects. Literally right here on 26th Street and 10th Avenue. That was my first neighborhood. Two blocks away from where I live. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, I mean, that neighborhood has changed so much, obviously, since I grew up there. But, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I loved being in New York City in the heart of everything. It really felt like, wow, I'm in New York City. Everybody wants to be in New York City. So there was a sense of pride and also a sense of I can probably do whatever it is that I set my mind to just because I lived in the best city in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> Did you go to the high school or the middle school on 9th Avenue between 27th and no, 28th? No, I went to a Catholic school that's no longer there. Um, St. Columba used to be on a 25th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. But then I eventually went to high school on the Upper East Side, an all-girl Catholic high school named St. Oh, your Saint parents Jean's were Baptiste. really strict. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Education was very important in our house. We did not have much. We did not have a lot of money. But from a very young age, she kept reminding me how I needed to get into NYU because she worked as a secretary at the hospital. And one of the benefits was that if your kid was lucky enough to get in, free tuition. 
So you did go to NYU. <laughs> I did go to NYU, And you yes. majored in journalism. <laughs> yep. What first attracted you to magazines? Is that what you always knew yeah, you wanted I, to do? I loved magazines from a very, very young age, whether it was a subscription to Vogue magazine and just whatever, whatever magazines that fashion magazines were in the house. I just loved the world. I loved to be able to turn those pages and see the clothes and the beautiful locations and the writing, just everything about it. I just felt like this is what I want to do. I have this vision of you creating your own magazines growing oh, up. Oh, yeah. I, my mom was very <laughs> upset with me because I would cut them all up and sort of make my own and do my own little thing. But, yeah, I was just fascinated with it. But it's funny. It goes to show you how important it is to have someone that is just supportive of what it is you do. Because for my mom, because we didn't grow up with a lot of money, to her, the only careers that were what I should be aiming for was like doctor, lawyer. That's all I heard growing up. You need to be a doctor, lawyer, doctor, lawyer. And it really was the next door neighbor of mine that kind of saw that interest in magazines. She was like, oh, you could do that. You could work in a magazine. And I was like, I can. And it was that sort of encouragement that made me sort of realize, oh, yeah, I'm going to work in a magazine. And I didn't look back. Your mom must be so incredibly proud of you. She is, but it took her a really long time to understand what I did. <laughs> because <laughs> in the beginning, when I did graduate from NYU, you know, with my degree in journalism and then ended up getting a job at Vibe Magazine when it first started, I think she was not, I think, I know she was just very confused. Like, wait, so are you going to make any money? Like, what is that? What do you do? What, you know, she just kind of didn't understand it. It wasn't until like maybe years later when she would see me on TV sort of talking about pop culture that it kind of clicked for her like, oh, okay, I, I think I understand what you do now. In all of the research that I uncovered on you, it always states that you went to Vibe straight out of college and you were there since day one. Yeah. And I wasn't entirely sure if that meant day one after you graduated or day one of the magazine. I know the <laughs> magazine started in 93. Technically day one of the magazine because there was a test issue of the magazine okay. in the fall of 92 and they weren't sure Tom Warner at the time was the owner and they weren't sure whether or not it was going to be a real thing. And then when they decided to give the magazine a green light. And they hired the staff. I was part of that founding staff of the how magazine. How did you get? How did you even know okay. that it? How so, did this so he, let me let me tell you something about that vibe story that is so funny to me. I saw this test issue of the magazine, and I was amazed with it because I had been such a big hip hop fan growing up, and I knew I wanted to work in magazines, but it never really dawned on me that the two worlds can sort of be in one place. And the Source magazine had existed at the time, but I didn't really like it because I felt like the photography wasn't that good. The writing wasn't that great. The, the typos, it, I didn't take that seriously. And then when I saw Vibe, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like amazing photography and the design and these type treatments and, and the writing and the journalism. And this is like this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Luckily, I knew someone who knew someone who knew someone that said that they were going to start hiring. And I just sent a cover letter and a resume. I interviewed with nine different people. Over a month and a half, right? A month and a half, period. Oh, my God. I was so like, oh, my gosh, if I don't get this job. But there were three editorial assistant positions available, and I ended up getting one of them, and I was so happy. And I think my starting salary was $18,000 a year. You actually left Vibe for a bit for a record company, to work for a record yeah. company. And you also worked at The Source. Yep. <laughs> um, but, and I read that you are probably the only ex-employee that didn't have a bad experience <laughs> at The Source. I know. Gosh, The Source went through so much in the 90s and 
I was there for a very short time. I was there for maybe like eight months, and I did have a really good experience. Um, when I was there, my position was fashion editor, and they didn't really have like a really strong fashion department or even strong fashion editorial. So I was able to come in, kind of fix that. They got all sorts of new advertising because of the pages. So I think maybe that's why, too. Like, I helped bring in some money to the magazine. That always helps, right? So I think that also kind of helps your experience. But, yeah, I had a great experience. No issues at all. You stated that the Compass had always, at that point in your life, led back to Vibe. And you went back to Vibe. Why? What made you go back? Well, I think I had missed it. I was there from the beginning, and it was such an awesome experience. And again, like my time at the source was fine, but I felt like I was such a a vibe baby, you know, since I had worked there from day one and and really saw the growth of the magazine. So when the opportunity presented itself to come back, I was just kind of like, you know what, I'm going to go back home. You stated, albeit jokingly, that you were given the Vibe editor-in-chief job at the worst time (laughs) ever. The music and the culture had gotten so huge and had become such a global phenomenon that while it was exciting to see the scope of the influence that hip-hop music had on the world at large, coverage of it was no longer owned by Vibe, and everyone wanted in on the action time. Magazine put Kanye on the cover. Beyonce was on the cover of Rolling Stone, a magazine that had all but ignored R&B for what seemed like forever. What do you attribute the mainstreaming of the genre at that time? How did that happen? Well, I think the appeal of the music is just undeniable. And I think as time went on, that just became more and more clear that for the longest time, it was such the subculture. And I think people assumed that it was only people of color that were listening to it. And then once they realized the popularity just started to grow and grow. And I mean, it's an American created music. And and it's something that speaks to many people, whether it's just the sound of it that you enjoy or the lyrics that you can relate to. There's the storytelling. There's just something really fun about the music. So I think it was only a matter of time before it would become this global phenomenon. But in those very early days, from whether it was being in grammar school where I would get made fun of for liking the music to first getting to vibe and being like, all right, we're going to really champion this genre and really help people understand why the people making it are really superstars and they are poets. This music deserves to be respected and not just considered this sort of novelty subculture that doesn't have legs. So I think for us, we just were really happy once what we hoped would happen happened we were just upset (laughs) because we were like now we have to fight with rolling stone to get beyonce are you serious like but whatever (laughs) as editor-in-chief you were really instrumental in finding new superstars and you stated how many times can we do stories on some of these established artists they're not going to be so open about what's going on in their life and more often than not you know what's going on you know everything Mimi, how did we get to this place where we seem to know everything about celebrities? I sort of call it the TMZ culture. Right, right. It's so funny because I think during the time that I said that quote, I think it was more about because we were there first and we had relationships with these artists. I've known Beyonce since she was 16, right? Like, the you know, Jay-Z from his very first album. So because we were championing their music and really sort of helping them bring their stories to the world, We just had a relationship with these artists where we knew more about them than, let's say, a Rolling Stone did. So I think that was also really important that at the end of the day, when we did do the established stars, we were telling different stories and they were more comfortable with us because 
we'd known them for a long time. But it's 24 hours. That's the other thing. It's like, oh, my gosh, like, when does it stop? It's like when artist says something, it's like, all right, we got to report it. I'm more about the art and what it is that they're offerings when it comes to that as opposed to their personal lives. Like all the stories that I wrote, whether it was Justin Timberlake, Jennifer Lopez, uh, you know, Beyonce, whoever, I wanted to always show beyond the glamour and the glitz, like who they truly were as a person and as a human being and what inspired them, what were the things that got them excited about making art. Those were the kind of stories, and that's how I ran the magazine. I just can't imagine having to now be so all up in everybody's business. Like, that just feels weird. Did you send something when you met the very young 16-year-old Beyonce or when you heard Jay-Z's first album that this was the real deal, these people were going to go far? Yeah, to be honest, I, I think when you get in that close proximity of these artists, I find it very easy to know who the stars are. Like, they just they just the have charisma. something. Yeah, there's just something about them. Like, my sort of test would always be like, I'd hear a song and I'd be like, I need to see the video. And then in the video, I'd be like, mm, okay, I see something. And then, of course, when you meet them in person, it sort of gets gets solidified your gut instinct. While you were at Vibe, you did a lot to try and change the perception of beauty in the media as well. And you stated that when you were growing up, you saw only one body image. You saw skinny girls that didn't have hips or butts or thick legs. And when you were working at Vibe, you were really one of the first, if not the first, head of an entertainment property that influenced the perception of women of color. Yeah, and I can't take responsibility just for me. I think that came from hip-hop again. There's anyone I'm going to really credit with celebrating different body types. It's probably video director Hype Williams. Oh, yeah. Because I think even in the early days of hip-hop, the norm at the time was to get very skinny girls to play the sort of love interest. And we saw that a lot in those early hip-hop videos. And I think Hype really kind of came in and was like, okay, Back in our neighborhoods, this is what we think is pretty. It's a girl with, you know, who's more voluptuous, and we're going to start seeing those body types. And, of course, at Vibe, too, I mean, we were definitely doing photo shoots with different types of body types, but I really credit the Hype Williams phenomenon of those music videos of really sort of allowing maybe the rise of a J-Lo or, you know, a Kim Kardashian because those bodies were not celebrated in mainstream. You expanded the Vibe brand to include award shows and Internet ventures and a publication geared specifically to women. And again, in many ways, you were once again ahead of your time leveraging the content and intent right. of well, the brand. Well, it wasn't just me. I don't want to take all the okay, responsibility. Okay, okay. It was that. you and a group of yeah, other people. Yeah, it was, people. you know, in okay. terms of just, er- yeah. just everyone. But yeah, but yeah. you were the editor-in-chief, so right. you, were, you were the chief, right? <laughs> what gave you the notion that you'd be successful doing this? What's so interesting is that all these years later, those are the things that are left of the Vibe brand. It's funny because people ask me a lot about like, gosh, like Vibe isn't what it used to be because, you know, the print publication doesn't exist anymore and now it's online. And I think that has more to do with the owners, you know, the people who eventually bought the magazine and then they sold it and then someone else yeah, bought went it. through the whole VC yeah, thing, it's like, which it's that, that is always bad. Is always bad. But I think we identified early on that it couldn't just be about print. You know, if, if the magazine, the brand was going to be able to sustain and have a legacy, we had to have an online presence, you know, the award show, we we had a, a news magazine show that would happen every weekend, like any media company, you have to figure out what's next. And you have to just try those things. And more than anything, people have so many content options. Like, what do you do? It's like, do I watch this? Do I watch this? Do I do this? Do I? It's like, crazy. So it's like, if you don't think about how to just make sure you're relevant in the future and figuring out where people are gravitating towards, you're just going to get left behind. 
What made you decide to leave Vibe and go to Latina? I would have stayed at Vibe my entire life, to be honest. I would have been there probably forever. Really, what happened was that new owners came in and fired all of senior management. I used to make that joke. I was like, I'll be here until they throw me out the window. And that's kind of what they did. <laughs> so, And isn't it interesting how life takes its turns and you're yeah. doing what you're doing now? I know. As opposed crazy. to what would have happened had you stayed? Yeah, had I stayed. Look, I think I would have been very happy, you know, again, provided that we had the right business people running the business and taking care of things. But I think it was just more like, okay, so what am I going to do next? I never thought about pursuing something outside of magazines, which is why my next position was Latina. I was like, okay, I know how to do this. Like now I'm doing a a women's magazine for Latinas that has everything from music, fashion, and beauty. You came in and redesigned the website and the magazine. Yeah, magazine changed the logo. Yep. It's gorgeous. Oh, thank Um, you. Yeah, it's still there. They still kept it. I (laughs) know, I know. Um, The first issue under your redesign featured a piece on Jessica Alba, which you also wrote yourself, and it immediately went viral. Um, You addressed the misguided rumors about her not wanting to be labeled as a Latina actress and detailed some of the hate she had experienced online. And I want to talk to you a little bit about when and why you think this generation of online haters has taken hold. Mm. It really has changed It's upsetting. the landscape <laughs> of humanity. It really has, but it's still, I think, a small portion. They're just people that just want to hide behind their computers. You know, I call them internet thugs, right? Like they're behind their computers saying all these things that they would never say to someone in their face. But it is really upsetting. And that Jessica Alba story was really interesting because I would see all these things online of things that she said, and I was like, something about this doesn't seem right. Like it just seems weird. Only because I became obsessed with like watching all these interviews. And I remember coming across a talk show. I don't remember what talk show she was on. And she said something about her dad and they like panned to her dad. And her dad was a dark skinned Mexican. And I was like, there's no way that she can't identify with being Latina. Like, I just don't believe it. And then sure enough, when we landed the interview and I got to talk to her about it. Yeah, it was like all lies. Total lies. In the interview you conducted with her, she spoke really candidly about growing up with her Mexican dad and Mm -hmm. a white mom and the many struggles and issues she had. How did you get someone so famous to share such intimate stories about who they are and what they stand for? I mean, it's a pretty remarkable article. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I think... When I do decide to write, everyone knows I turn into a crazy person because I obsessively research. I'm telling you, I think I saw every interview that <laughs> Jessica Alba had ever did. I just like was searching on YouTube or reading magazine articles. So I think part of it is that I come into it super prepared. You'd be surprised, but I just think a lot of journalists don't come fully prepared, you know, or they come with obvious agendas of like, all right, I'm trying to get the drama, I'm trying to get the scandal. And I think as an artist, you know, these celebrities just sort of shut down. And I've luckily had this ability that people kind of know my intentions and know that I'm trying to get something other than just the gloss and the glamour. I remember Jennifer Lopez's sister said to me, she was like, you get the best interviews out of my sister. She was like, I don't get it. She was like, I don't understand why your stories are like, so I, re- I read them and I feel like this is who my sister is. And again, I think I was just super prepared and she knew my intentions. I wasn't trying to get her or do anything. And she's revealed the craziest things to me. Everything from like feeling that when she was dating um, Puff, you know, Diddy at the time and she felt like he was cheating. Again, like all these stories. But I think when people have interviewed her, I think they think that she's going to be an intimidating person, and she's not. She's a sweetheart. She's probably the most, one of the most generous sort of human beings I've ever met. She's just very sweet. 
you know, and I can say that about like Beyonce. Beyonce is like the nicest person you will ever meet. She's painfully nice, that girl. Good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) While you were editor-in-chief of Vibe and Latina, you won a Magazine Mentor of the Year Award from the Magazine Publishers of America and a Community and Civic Duty Visionary Award from New Vision Magazine. It seems that working with communities and underprivileged kids has been a, a pretty critical component to a lot of your work. Is this how you first met Pharrell? Pharrell, I actually met when I was at Vibe. I interviewed him. So we've been friends for, gosh, now like 15 years. But at the time, the Neptunes were just starting to become really popular. And he was so brutally honest about how just kind of being annoyed that every artist or label were coming to him like, oh, you know, well, you know, if the Neptunes give you something, it's going to be a hit. And he was just like, oh, my gosh, like, we're not the answer. Like, I just want to make music. I don't want that added pressure. And I just thought that was so like, that's different, right? Like, you don't expect someone to sort of, you know, say those sort of things. And then we actually met in person when I interviewed Justin Timberlake. We put Justin Timberlake on the cover of Vibe. So I had kind of first white guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, was he the first guy? Yeah, I guess he was. I was there for most of the recording of the Justin Timberlake album. And that was the first time I met Fro. And we just connected. It was like literally like a brother-sister relationship. And to be honest, it's like I'm a journalist. He's an artist. It could be kind of weird. Again, he's just a normal person. And so it's just worked. And we've been friends since. In 2009, you and Pharrell launched Kidult, which was a news and entertainment website for teens. And in 2013, you joined him as creative director at his production company, I Am Other. Last year, you were promoted to chief creative officer. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, How would you describe I Am Other? And what's with the name? (laughs) So actually, I came on, he started, I think you said 2013. It was 2011. Okay. That he officially started I Am Other and I came on as as creative director. So I Am Other, he had always wanted to create a company which he calls a creative collective. Just sort of it would be the umbrella company of all his different ventures. But the name actually came from a meeting he had with Lauren Hill. She was being really sweet and very gracious about like, I like what you do. You're very different. But she was like, but you know what? If you work with me, I need other. And that just stuck. And he was like, other, okay. So that was always in his head that one day he wanted to kind of use that for something. And then then it morphed into sort of I am other and this idea of it's okay not to fit in. And Pharrell's always been the weirdo, right? Even when he came into music, I remember A&R guys that I knew when I think Nori's Super Thug came out. And that was like the first time I really paid attention to a Neptune's record. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? And they were like, isn't it like the hardest hitting hip hop song you've ever heard? I was like, yeah, it's crazy. And they're like, yeah, but the two guys, they're two weirdos from, <laughs> from Virginia Peach. Like that's how everybody described them. They were just such outcasts. They looked different. They dressed different. No one understood them. So I think that has always stayed with him. Now it's funny because he's considered so cool and people look at him as icon. He doesn't, look at himself that way at all he still thinks of himself as like oh my god they're all going to realize one day that i'm i'm not supposed to be here like he lives with that sort of imposter syndrome too (laughs) yes he definitely does so that's where the he wanted he just wanted the company to be a reminder for people who feel like nobody gets them and no one understands them and that's what he wanted the company to sort of represent and 
Yeah. So interesting because I see him as such a trendsetter and a visionary. But I guess in order to be somebody that really takes culture to a new place, you have to be other. You have to be outside of that. Well, he likes operating. And I think all of us at at the company, I mean, myself, too, just even, you know, what I did in magazines and what he's done with music. We look for what's not there. You know, and we're like, okay, what's not there? All right, let's create that. That's what's exciting to us. And for both of us. When something feels risky, that's when I'm like, good, this is it. Doesn't scare you. No, because I'm like, this is right. (laughs) You know, like the happy video to me is like a perfect example of that because it was like he had a different idea for the video. I was like, no, you know, why don't you just do what Gru does in Despicable Me? That's when the lead character is realizing he's falling in love and happy's playing and he's dancing on the street. I was like, oh, you should just do what Gru does. People don't know how silly you are and your personality would be a good sort of new side to show to the audience. But then when we had found these directors, we are from L.A., and then they're the ones that came back and was like, oh, we want to make 24-hour video. And we were just like, how do you do a 24-hour music video? That's crazy. But because it was crazy, we were like, okay, this is it. (laughs) But let's go back a little bit further. What I find really crazy about the whole thing was that the song didn't come out instantly becoming a hit. They didn't get it. (laughs) Sometimes you need a visual, right? Like we tried. We like sent it to radio stations. People were telling us it's not a hit. It's not a hit. We were like, how could they have said that? I think you needed to see it. It didn't sound like anything on the radio. It was completely different. But it was very shocking to us because this is coming off of the success of Get Lucky and Blurred Lines. And we were like, oh okay, well, surely it'll just fit right in there. No, everybody was like, the radio program is, we just kept hearing, it's not a hit, it's not a hit. And all summer we were like, we should do a video, we should do a video. And then it wasn't until September that we actually did the video, but we didn't put it out um, until November 21st. That's the exact day that we put it up on our YouTube channel and Pharrell tweeted it. And then we just sat back and waited and we were just like, Let's see. (laughs) Let's see if this works. Now, didn't he originally want to do the video with a choir? There is a choir in the video, but he wanted this idea of like a day at church, right? Like everything that happens at church and, you know, the bake sale downstairs and whatever. And again, it would have, I think it would have been a really great video, but I don't know why. I just was like, what Gru did in the movie, that's what you should do. It's so interesting to me when things catch on, especially when they've been out for a while. Right. And what is that tipping point that creates the groundswell that becomes this monumental culture embracing people? Yeah, I think what was going on in the world, this idea of being happy was I think everyone could just sort of respond to it. And it was such a simple video. It was like just someone dancing down the street. We've heard that doctors, nurses have used the 24 hour website. You know, they'll just put it on for patients and, you know, they've used it in therapy to make people happy like that that's really awesome I mean when those first videos started coming in I used to cry I probably would still cry if someone showed me a new one because it's overwhelming it's very overwhelming thousands 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 and you see all these like incredibly happy people all these different places and just purely just showing joy and I think that's an important thing and it was a reminder I think to us and especially to Pharrell it was like wow like music can communicate emotions so effectively and that's what I think that that video was able to do. It's like you heard the song and it sounded great. But it's like when you saw that video, it was like a roadmap. This is what you should do when you hear the song. You should feel happiness. One of your other ventures is a movie that's just come out. It's called Dope. You co-produced the Sundance Film Festival and Cannes Film Festival Independent Film. And when you and Pharrell first sat down with Rick Famuyiwa, 
the director of the film, you found out that the script had been turned down by just about every movie well, studio. Well, actually, no. I'll, it's, it, actually, let me, let me correct some of that. So our agent told us about Rick's idea. It wasn't even a script at the time. Oh. So when we first sat down with him, he just had this idea. He had a lookbook, a bunch of images that all look cool. And I just fell in love. Both of us fell in love with the idea of, wow, okay, nerds in the hood, navigating all the drama. That's kind of how Pharrell and I grew up. You know, we were the smart, nerdy kids. So we identified with the idea and we were like, go ahead and write the script. So he wrote the script, and that's when Forrest Whitaker and Nina Yang Bon Jovi, Significant Productions, they had just finished doing Fruitvale Station. They came on to do the film with us because we had never produced a movie. We obviously needed real producers. And uh, Nina ended up raising the money for the film. But before she raised the money independently, they were like, you know what? Let's just go around to the studios and just see, you know, if there's any interest, right? And, yeah, nobody... Crickets. (laughs) (laughs) Crickets. And what's even funnier is that I know... They said one executive was like, come on, black people are so cool. No one's going to believe that they're nerds. Like, that's actually something a studio executive said. I was in the meeting, thankfully, because I don't know how to hold my mouth. So I'm sure (laughs) it would not have been good for me to be in meetings like that. But, yeah, I mean, the other studios were like, well, can you just make the lead black and make the other two white? And, of course, Rick didn't want to change any of that. And so we raised the money independently and took it to Sundance and had the biggest sale last year. We got it into Cannes, which was a shock because we hoped that we get into Sundance and we were like, we felt pretty good, but obviously there's no guarantee they get 12,000 submissions, right? So like, so we were lucky that it got into Sundance, but when it got into Cannes, I think I was like, this movie got into Cannes, like really? Well, that was on the heels of you winning the Grand Prix for Happy, but that, it's a different festival, <sighs> yeah, but, but still, because it's such a specific kind of movie. I mean, first of all, there was two American movies at Cannes last year, right? I think like two or three got into that festival. So already it's like, wow, like of all the American choices, they picked ours. But I think it's because the movie had a lot of heart and it had these characters that you just don't see on the screen and I guess the French just appreciated that but still I remember we were sitting at the screening and I was terrified and Pharrell was looking at me like why are you so nervous I was like because the French people will boo you if they don't like this movie and I don't want to get booed so yeah you've said that you were surprised at how transferable your editor-in-chief skills were to filmmaking how so when we negotiated to be a part of this project they wanted Pharrell, right? Of course, they wanted him to do the music. So when we negotiated for me to have a co-producer title, I was kind of like, all right, they're just giving, you know, how much am I really going to be able to do? They just want Pharrell, whatever, whatever. And then when I got to set, I was like, all right, someone's going to tell me to sit in the corner, right? Like someone's, someone surely is going to be like, okay, yeah, yeah, we know you're the Pharrell person, but go go over there. And by day two, Nina Yang Bon Jovi, she was like, look, can you stay for the entire production? Um, Because my original plan was to stay for a week and it was a five-week production. I was like, sure, you know, of course I say. She was like, you're such a natural. Please, you've been so helpful. It would be great to just have you here the whole time. And so I was, you know, taken aback by that, really happy and excited to have that experience. But then when I realized when I was on set, I was like, oh, this is like... It's kind of like a magazine. You have all these crazy creative people. Everyone's working towards one goal and you're just trying to, you know, manage and make sure everyone's feeling supported and they do what it is that they need to do. I don't know. I I just feel like I have a sensitivity to that. So I think that's what ended up being, um, I think, a really good thing to have on that set. You stated that the most important takeaway from the film is that your environment doesn't define who you are. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I think growing up in the projects, not with a lot of money, I think there's this perception that you can only do that. And really, it's about trying to find those opportunities, because I think a lot of times people don't succeed is because they don't believe that 
they can do more, right? So first there needs to be the sort of encouragement of like, oh, no, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. And here are some options and here are some opportunities. And that's probably something that I've just struggled with my whole life, that it's always in my head that I always want to make sure that I'm thinking about Chelsea projects and thinking about other kids like that. Yeah, the The others others and, and people that they might not have the opportunity or might not realize that you don't just have to be, you know, X, Y, and Z. Like when you live in these not glamorous neighborhoods or environments, that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have the right to dream bigger. One of the most wonderful pieces that I uncovered in my research was the I Am Other Manifesto. (laughs) Yes. Which is really like a rallying cry for humanity. And I was wondering if you would read it. Sure, I'll read it. Wonderful. Thank you, Mimi. Here it is. I serve and represent the others because I am one myself. Others defy expectations and stereotypes. We are curious, ambitious, energetic, and have every intention of squeezing the most out of life. Above all, we are individuals. Others don't fit into categories. We are not jocks or skaters or musicians or students or technologists or audiophiles. We want to be all of the above and then some. Others are a diverse group of optimistic, bright minds connected by technology and a desire to make our mark, who together can advance culture and even humanity. Others are not defined by demographics or geography, We have shared ideals, dreams, and a vision for a new reality. Others believe individuality is the new wealth. Experiences are the new assets to acquire. Whoever is the most individual wins. I Mother celebrates people who push society forward, the thinkers, the innovators, the outcasts. History has proven that it is the rule breakers who have the power to change the world. Be other. Thank you, Mimi. It's (laughs) it's wonderful to be part of the otherness for this last hour. And it's been incredible. For more information about what Mimi Valdez is up to or to get your own copy of the I Am Other Manifesto, go to IamOther.com. This is the 11th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.